Welcome to Speaking Candidly with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Schoner, and today I will be talking to my guest, Aaron Tucker. Aaron, Hello. Hi, Aaron. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good. I'm glad to have you here. Let me kind of share with our audience a little bit about you, and then we'll get into our conversation. Sounds good. All right. So Aaron is the Executive Director of On Our Own, a mental health recovery service in Charlottesville, Virginia. Prior to On Our Own, Aaron provided peer support to folks with serious mental health challenges. Aaron received her Bachelor's of Science in Human Services Counseling from Old Dominion University. So welcome again, Aaron. Thanks. What nice was to it? Here. <laughs> we are very happy to have you. Um, what is it about the mental health field that first drew you in? Well, I think like many people who have history of trauma, I remember in seventh grade thinking this is something that I want to get into because I, uh, I lived, I had a childhood that was, that was filled with a lot of uh, tumultuous, uh, challenging situations. And I wanted to figure out a way to not only help myself, but help other people that uh, were going through something similar. I do agree. It seems that a lot of people in the field have gone through some of their own challenges, as you say. And I know sometimes things are circumstantial, other times the more traumatic um, and I mentioned in the intro, and I wanted to get into this a little bit, is I said that you had dealt with serious mental health challenges or at least right. as a peer support. So what would differentiate serious mental health in your experience to more moderate or mild uh, conditions? Well, when I worked at Region 10, uh, the folks that I worked with, um, that was sort of the, the code name that they gave to people who had persistent, challenging mental health issues. So uh, things like schizophrenia and, um, you know, bipolar uh, disorder with psychotic features, things like that. That would something that people would probably need help with for much of their um, adult life. And um, mild and moderate are usually, like you were saying, you know, situational. You might have bouts of depression. You may, you know, but there are things that usually with um, treatment you could have episodes. Um, so I think that would differentiate it. At least that's what I understand from my psychology degree. But luckily, I um, I don't have to worry about diagnoses at on our own because we don't we don't diagnose anyone, and we take everyone as they are when they come in. You know, I remember moving to Charlottesville about thirty years ago, and I think that's when. Uh, on our own had a drop was considered a drop-in center yes <laughs> yes which Me I think through. was a fantastic mm -hmm. idea by the way yeah um, but obviously like all organizations it's evolved over the years so can you share with the audience a little bit 
about what On Our Own is doing now? Absolutely. And you're right. We, um, 30 years ago when we opened, uh, and that was when Paul Patrick and some folks from Region 10 got together and wrote grants in order for uh, On Our Own to be an independent nonprofit solely for people who were in recovery from mental health challenges to be able to have a place to just meet and hang out. Um, and, and at the time, they were offering basic uh, drop-in services. But then when I started about 12 years ago, uh, the Haven had opened up. And so they started taking over those basic um, needs that that we felt obligated to do, such as showering and, uh, you know, uh, having the food, uh, having people come in and make meals and things like that. So we we were no longer obligated to do that. And we could focus on our primary mission, which is to help people who are in recovery stay in recovery and get better. And so we became a recovery center rather than a drop-in center. Uh, so now everyone that comes to On Our Own is there because they want to, um, they want to get better. They want to do something different in their lives. And uh, it's a very different place than it was um, even 12 years ago when I started. I love what it says on the website. Uh, the goal at On Our Own is not to fix anyone, but instead is to help people who are struggling with mental health challenges and addiction. We do not believe that anyone is wise enough to dictate the course of anyone else's recovery. Our goal rather is to empower people to understand where they are, where they have been, and to chart their own way forward. Yeah. Um, and how it does, you know, talk about the services that you provide now that meets those objectives. So the core of, or the foundation of our program in our house, because the way I look at it is we have our house programs and then we have tentacles out into the community. And so the, in our house, um, unfortunately, we, we have to do this virtually right now because of COVID. Uh, but we focus on groups and we have free groups throughout the entire day. And then we also have one-on-one -on -one peer support with trained uh, peer support specialists that work at On Our Own. And everyone that works at On Our Own um, has been in recovery or is in recovery from some type of mental health uh, or substance use challenge. And they are able, they're trained and able to uh, talk with others who are trying to navigate a pathway forward and are having trouble now. And sometimes we just have people that come because, you know, they feel part of the family. So maybe they're in a, a really different place now, but they just love um, coming back and sharing what worked for them. So we have our groups all day. We have one-on-one -on -one peer support. Uh, we have um, a beautiful gazebo out back where we have a social hour every week where people can come and, and meet each other. And we still do food pantry. So we have lots of donations and two times a week people come and, and 
get food and take it home. And then we also have these tentacles, like I was saying, where we provide peer support for other organizations. So we contract with, we have three contracts with Region 10 to provide peer support to their, uh, to their different caseloads or different, um, different, you know, um, uh, different places that they need peer support. And then we have one with Western State Hospital providing peer support. We have one with Offender Aid and Restoration, OAR, where we provide peer support for their drug court. Uh, and I feel like I'm missing somebody. But anyway, we have, um, we have different, uh, different, you know, um, community uh, partners that we partner with. So it's, um, oh, Louisa, we have um, someone in Louisa uh, partnering with another peer center in Harrisonburg, Strength and Peers, and UVA Hospital, um, the Department of Psychiatry, to provide telehealth and telemedicine and peer support in Louisa to people who really need it. That sounds like a lot to have on your plate. Um, <laughs> yeah. I applaud you for for doing that. And of course, I imagine that you also have to keep the money coming in to fundraise for the nonprofit. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's really prob probably the most challenging part. Uh, we, we did open a thrift store, uh, unfortunately, right before COVID happened. Um, but it's called Uplift Thrift. And uh, the goal of Uplift Thrift is to not only help folks in our community, but also hopefully one day raise um, funds for on our own. Um, and we're, we have a wonderful community. Um, you know, our community just comes together for us. And so we're hoping one day that that'll, that will um, help us with fundraising. But for the time being, we write a lot of grants, we, uh, <laughs> we receive donations, uh, our community is very good, good to us. So, well, just so we can make sure that the community continues to be good to you, um, can you share the website and where people can go to donate to on our own? Oh, absolutely. Um, our, our website is on our own Seville, dot org. on our own org. You mentioned the gazebo and I know a little bit about that. Um, and it's also almost impossible to talk about mental health these days without discussing the impact of COVID has yes. had on individuals and families. So the obvious question is how has it impacted the services that on your own? Ah, oh, goodness. Um, it has been very challenging for uh, our members and for our staff. And um, when COVID uh, happened, we had about a week to turn around to figure out what we were going to do. And we assigned, we just looked at all of our active members, which at the time, I believe we had 56. And we split them up and gave them to staff members and said, okay, we're going to call these our members every day to check on them. And we continue to do that. Now we've grown and we're supporting over 125 people wow. daily. Yeah, we've, it's, it's, it's incredible. People have been finding us from, you know, Northern Virginia and 
we've just been, because we're virtual now, we're pretty much everywhere. We had to, of course, make sure all of our members were able to find us on the internet. So we had to purchase laptops and, um, and, you know, Chromebooks and sometimes internet for people that didn't have it so that if they wanted to join our meetings that they could, um, Unfortunately, because we couldn't meet in person, um, and I, I strongly believe that if our doors still had been open, that we wouldn't have lost one of our members, uh, Luke Raymond. We lost him on July 1st of 2020, and he had been coming to on our own for about eight years, and he was only 30 years old. And when things would get tough for him, he would always come in and play chess and, um, you know, hang out with other people. And it was just such a wonderful, um, connection that we had with Luke. And unfortunately he did, uh, take his life and, uh, the gazebo was, uh, gifted to us by his family. They started a foundation, the Luke J. Raymond foundation. Uh, and, um, so it's a beautiful reminder of his spirit, and um, he was just, he was a beautiful person, and I um, i wish that we had been open so that he could have just walked in the door. Um, I think I think a lot of people wish that you had been open, but it's, it's yeah. a tragedy. It's unfortunate that this is happening more and more often, yeah. um, which sort of leads me to the whole idea of peer counseling because obviously that's what I want to say the platform or the the grounding area that you provide are mm-hmm. the peer counselors I know you said that you train them at on our own but is there another place for people to go to train to become a peer counselor if they're interested yes actually um the state so about five six years ago now I guess we wrote a curriculum the state wrote a curriculum Uh, So that everyone in the state could, uh, because before you could just say, well, I'm a, I'm a peer, I'm a peer specialist. Uh, If you had lived experience and you were working somewhere um, providing peer support, but there was no structured uh, curriculum for peers across the state. And so uh, I believe it was about six years ago. Um, I was invited. I'm really grateful to have been invited to help help write or help edit the uh, curriculum. And now there is a statewide curriculum and there are about, let's see, the first there were 72 trainers that were trained across the state to be able to train this um, cohort of peer recovery specialist. And, and then they did a second one. So I'm guessing probably about a hundred trainers now that can train and you, you know, it's a 72 hour course. Uh, the department of behavioral health and developmental services, uh, the office of recovery support is where, um, they certify folks to, uh, get trained, um, or, you know, that's where you will, will find out about all the different trainings that are available and a 72 hour course. And then you have to do 500 hours of direct service. And then you have to sit for a state exam. And then every, 
Yeah. And then every two years we have to be recertified and have 20 uh, credits, uh, you know, CEUs to, in order to recertify. So it's, it's very, um, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, way of making sure that people are ethically upholding what peer support really is. And it is a profession. Um, Medicaid now will reimburse for peer recovery specialists. So that's funny because I was just going to ask whether these are paid positions Mm -hmm. or volunteer. So it sounds like it could be both. It can be both. Yes, it it can be both. So I want to ask, because you've obviously had extensive experience in this area. Do you see any common denominators among what you call your members um, who have come to Honor Own for help? Uh, it's interesting because we have such diversity. Uh, and I would have said, <clears throat> excuse me, back when I first started, we had a large number of folks who were experiencing homelessness when we were a drop-in center, obviously, because that was a place to be. But now I would say that... Um, there is there is a wide amount of diversity, so socioeconomic diversity and um, and also uh, ethnic and spiritual and you know, it's just a wonderful mix of different people and uh, intersection like in all intersections and it's just it's it's really lovely to see people connecting that might not have connected if they hadn't met it on our own. So it's hard to, to really say that, you know, what the common denominator is, except for everyone is there because they want to, uh, you know, they want to be in a different place in their life. They, they have a goal of getting better. Well, I think, saying that it's such a diverse group of people also proves that mental health issues or illness can affect anybody. Mm, mm-hmm. That's so true. I mean, we have UVA professors, we have, you know, people that are stay at home parents. We have, I mean, it, it affects everyone, you know, no matter what race, what, you know, what, what your sexual preference, all of that. I mean, it's just, we, it's, it doesn't matter. It will affect everyone. It can affect everyone. What do you think are maybe two or the three most important things for individuals who are in recovery or want to get recovered from their circumstances, whether it's an addiction or anxiety, depression, what do you think they need to have to be successful for the recovery? I, I think that they need connection. I mean, what we see is that the more connection people have with, with each other, the better they become. And that's one of the reasons why we started our uh, PA, um, our per, we call it personal advocacy. It's one-on-one peer support. Because before we used to just do groups and then 
I'd look around and all of my facilitators were in different rooms with people because people needed to talk about whatever was going on with them. And so we decided we needed to have people that were just there to work with people one-on-one and not just in group. I mean, our groups are wonderful, but sometimes you just need that connection of, a you know, having that one person that you can talk to and who will listen to you non-judgmentally and not give you advice, not tell you what to do, but just listen, you know, with their heart and connect with you, you know, heart to heart. And, and I really believe that connection is, is, is the goal um, and And is the solution. Mm -hmm. I agree. And then, you know, unfortunately with COVID, Uh, So many people got isolated and of course more attention is being drawn to mental illness because of the isolation, which again proves that people need those connections. So I'm very happy that you guys got the gazebo and there's, you know, opportunity for people to be face to face. Yes. Yes. It's, um, it's so much different. I mean, I'm so grateful that we have a virtual platform that we were able to lean on, but it, it really, it truly isn't the same. I mean, you know, it just isn't. And I'll be so grateful one day when we'll be able to hug each other again, and we'll be able to connect again in in the ways that we were doing prior to COVID. And I really hope that that day is coming soon. Um, I think we all do. Um, I know yeah. personally, I am missing the connection, the hugs, the touch because of COVID. I spend a lot of time at home. I'm fortunate yeah. I do also get out at a part-time job now and then, and I see people, but I still keep my six feet away and I'm masked. A lot yep. of times I don't recognize those people with the mask on, which is kind of funny. And I'm not sure <laughs> we'll recognize them when the mask is off either. I'll be like, I met you, but no, I don't recognize you because <laughs> your mask is off. Um Obviously, mental health covers a tremendous amount of health issues. Yes. Do you think that there is any one or two areas that require more attention or more financial resources at this time? Well, uh, years ago, I was lucky enough to get trained by, um, by, uh, oh, of course I'm gonna, can't remember her name right now, but, um, she's the, she, she was the doctor that was in, that was, uh, the head of the national trauma informed care, um, Mm -hmm. uh, institute in DC. And, uh, and she, and I got to attend her training And one of the things she said is that if you look at, uh, if you look through the lens of trauma-informed care, then you can get rid of all, of 90% of all diagnoses, you can throw them out the window. And And when she said that, it really opened something up for me. And what I realized is that is that we can give anyone whatever labels we want, you know, schizophrenia, you know, you know, depression, blah, blah, blah. But really what we're talking about is trauma. And we're talking about, we're talking about how, how we 
our bodies are so we're so resilient that we use these, you know, coping mechanisms, whatever they may be, uh, to deal with the trauma that we've experienced. And whether it's functional or dysfunctional, we all do it. And so I think that if, um, unfortunately, when a new president had come on, you know, four, six years ago or whenever it was, uh, they disbanded the National Trauma-Informed Care Center. So I yeah. think that we need to put more resources into uh, having uh, people be uh, trauma-informed, all organizations being trauma-informed, uh, you know, public, uh, private, all institutions being um, trauma-informed, because I really believe that if we treat each other uh, like we just assume trauma when people walk through any door, like whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, whether it's the police station or whether it's school or whether it's, uh, you know, a, a hospital and, and we treat each other with that in mind, then we're going to have a healthier, safer world. It's just, um, it's just amazing uh, what, the difference between before I was trauma informed and now, um, and I just a training have... that I would personally like to yeah. have. I think that I agree with you. I think especially all the people in the, the public sector that are working, particularly with children, yes. teachers, the police, the fire rescue. Um, yes. So many people need that training. And I agree. What I've learned in my past is that, trauma does create those labels, so to speak, you know, if you, mm-hmm. or if you're addicted to drugs or alcohol, it's usually because there's a trauma, Absolutely. You know, if you have anxiety, if you have depression. But one of my other questions I thought about before the interview is the opioid uh, crisis. Yes. Um, and the fact that doctors continually, what it seems based on the news, pref- keep prescribing these medications to those people with mental illness mm-hmm. rather than encouraging perhaps maybe talk therapy, peer support. So what right. is your view on medication? And I think they have their place, by the way. I definitely believe in better living through chemistry, legal chemistry, by the way. Um, right. And that, that there's a combination, but I'm also personally concerned about how easy it is for people to get addicted to these prescription drugs. Right. Um so actually on, uh, at the end of the month for the festival of the book, we are, um, the, I'm heavily involved with the mental health and wellness coalition. And, um, we are sponsoring the book undoing drugs, the untold story of harm reduction and the future of addiction. And we're going, yeah, we're, I'm actually going to, to be mediating a panel and earlier, someone else um, from the Harm Reduction Coalition will be speaking with the author of this book. And I'm really on the side of harm reduction. I believe that, uh, you know, we've been working really hard over the last uh, four years to have prescribers prescribe less in our area and it hmm. has worked very well. Um, we have an opioid stakeholders meeting. 
through the coalition that uh, we have doctors that attend. We've been able to get out of um, so much information through that uh, through that channel to prescribers, to pharmacists, to the community. We've passed out, um, you know, done drug drops where uh, folks can come and bring all of their unused drugs and, mm. and things like that. Um, so, so, and then, and then I believe in harm reduction. I believe that, um, that it just doesn't work asking someone to stop cold Turkey, that right. we have to have a way in which people that we're saving their lives instead of, um, you know, possibly killing them by just taking them completely off with nothing to support them. So, um, so that's sort of where, where, where I am. I, I'm trying to figure out the best, you know, the, 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 the least uh, traumatic way to help people who have addiction issues, because I know how, how it, how it is to be addicted um, and to face that challenge um, in my own personal life. So I'm able to use my own experience to help other people. And there's not one, there's, everyone has multiple paths. Like there's so many different paths to recovery and everyone has to find what works for them. And I think we are running out of time. So I want to end on that note because everybody does have their own journey to recovery, but I think we're all in agreement that people need to open up about their mental health, share their story with somebody and try to get some help. Absolutely. So thank you, Erin, for your time and being on this podcast. I think we've helped some people, I hope. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you again. If you have thoughts of suicide, confidential help is available for free at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Call 1-800-273-8255. The line is available 24 hours every day. Please also check out our website, speakingcandidlywithcandice.com, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook for inspiring messages. And remember, every cloud has a silver lining.